this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfellan with I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here today with Missy Pissy Weiner. Quite a name, quite a character, and an amazing task as the executive director of SOS, Serenity Outreach Services. Welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. So I have a question to start with. Where did you start becoming actually a, a moving force in political activism? What year did you start? Why did you get involved at the nonprofit? What are you doing now as the executive director? Talk to us about that. Yeah, I I noticed an incredible lack of services and huge deficits in this town. And a, a lot of us were suffering from not getting proper care. And so I, you know, I just, I started, you know, trying to get somebody to listen that was in power, you know, mm-hmm. started talking, showing up at councils and trying to say something, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know enough. I didn't know where to, where to direct it or how to say it properly or, or any of that. So I was just kind of, yelling into the wind unfortunately <laughs> yeah when you started it was it was um a labor of of reality you were actually a person who who had been or were dealing mm-hmm. with severe different kinds of trauma you were dealing with homelessness you were very well street experienced in the problems that existed and you started going to council meetings and the city and county council meetings started to speak up. And the more you got involved, the more you realized that we really had some serious challenges between people who are entitled and work within the system and the people and, and people who work within the system, you know, people love to blame it on white entitled or male entitled. It's not about that. It's people who have money, who have jobs, who have insurance, who can pay the bills, they don't even realize they're entitled because people are struggling to get by in in today's day and age. But there's a big difference between having basic needs met and having no needs met. So so that's when you started getting involved was what, about 2020? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's, yeah, that's a, yeah. About 2020 was when, was when I was just, I was, I was found yelling at, county council because I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, this is zero amount of rodeos for me, you know, and I'm all triggered. And they said, you know, this and Marcus and some other people said, Hey, this is a problem we've seen for years and we want your experience. We want to, we hear you, you know, we can, we can hear the the anger and the the raw emotions that you have. And and we understand that these issues are, are real. And so that's, that's how I got involved with the people that I got involved with and how eventually we became and decided to form Serenity Outreach Services at the behest of the government. <laughs> so you eventually, you created an actual 501c3. You've gotten your credentials. You are working now. Our, we have a lawyer that is finishing up our credentials, and I have an email to him right now. <laughs> awesome. But, yep, but we are, yeah, we're all in, in getting all of that taken care of because 
that was the only way that we were told we could get any movement. Sure. And so you're, you've created a nonprofit, you're working on it, and you've learned a whole bunch. So I want to back up for just a minute, because I, when I called and asked you, I said, where in the world did your name come from? I mean, there's got to be a story about that. So can you show me, share me what your name was originally? Yeah. So yeah, so my, my married name was Melissa Gregg, and I changed it back to my maiden on the, on the Facebook and the social medias to Melissa Weisner. But during the, the presidential election, um, Facebook cracked down on a bunch of old posts people had done and like a bunch of us got blocked out of our Facebook accounts. Sure. And it was right in the middle of uh, the 210 protest encampment. A bunch of people were getting a hold of me and I was posting every day about what was going on and informing people and stuff. And so I had to create an alternate account. Uh-huh. And uh, my, my, I used to get teased a lot as a child. And so one of the names that they used to call me was Missy Pussy Wiener because Missy and Wisner. And so I kind of just went ahead and reclaimed that because I thought it was funny. And I was just going to use it for 30 days when I got bans. But when you're running through crazy stuff and meeting 50 people a day and, and all this saying Missy Pissy, it sticks in your brain and you can remember to look it up later. So when I tell people, oh, just look up Missy Pissy, they wouldn't have to write it down or anything and they could remember it. And so I kind of got like all of my people in my outreach and stuff all got on that page. And so I wound up having to keep it pretty much because then I was known by, by that. I was kind of infamous under that <laughs> moniker. So <laughs> Yeah. So you actually became a social media phenomenon of sorts under the name Missy Pissy. And it's yeah. easy for people to remember. And it does explain some of the, the rough language and some of the rough behavior that you had on the outside. But underneath it all, there's a gemstone. And I've met her. Mm-hmm. And you care about this planet. And you care about the people. And you care about the problems that we have. And you have made such a transformation over the last couple of years. I've watched it happen. I mean, it's amazing to see the, the maturation of how you think about what's going on in the community. So what are some of the key learnings that you've had over the last couple of years that you could speak to here? Well, I can tell you that one of the biggest things that enabled me to get to this point is a whole lot of privilege that a lot of people don't get when they were in my situation. Uh-huh. And I had a, a whole bunch of close friends and community members that had privilege and standing that were able to stand by me and support me. I happened to work at a small local business with friends. And so they were able to make allowances for my inability to, you know, for having to drop everything at the last minute and run off to court dates or deal with my children having trauma or dealing with my own trauma or any of these things that a normal job would never have allowed me to be able to do what I was able to do there and still maintain working. You know, I was taken in by friends and they let me and my kid live there. I mean, these are every single one of these things that happened was a privilege that not every person that goes through a trauma like that or any trauma is afforded naturally. And that's very upsetting. I was, I I already had a really good therapist and he kept me pro bono when my insurance lapsed before I could get onto new insurance. I mean, these are, these were all indispensable in my ability to actually stay and grow and, and recover from what me and my family went through and, and help my children recover. And, and then, and then look at the community and look at all the ways in which 
we weren't being helped in all the ways in which I had to have privilege and personal friends and all these things that that should be being supplied by our tax dollars and our outreach and all these systems that were supposed to save us and they weren't there. They weren't there. So it's interesting. You t- you use the word privilege very different than mm-hmm. what other people use. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I want to define the word privilege. Okay. Because what you just told me, if I wasn't listening with ears that have learned to listen to people right. in different classes Mm-hmm. You know, or caste yeah. systems, because in politics, we tend to like to classify people. We like to label people. We like to other people. We like to put Absolutely. race or money or authority on different terms. And so, and there's a big story out there about people who are privileged and all these white males who are privileged or these people who have, you know, so, so the word is like messed up a little bit. So the word privilege, as you're using it, is you had assets in your toolkit as a human being who who was able to access the support of the community. So community support was actually your privilege. It wasn't that you had any external privileges, per se, that gave you a lot of money or gave you a lot of, of authority. But you had support emotionally for yes. you as you were going through your own trauma, your own, you know, violent situations and dealing with homelessness and poverty and complications in the court systems. And so that's your definition of privilege, which is very different did, than what's used in politics typically. Well, I did. I do have I have friends that were able to help me out financially and Good. keep me afloat, too. So, you know, that. More but so than still, a, a lot of other people have, but yeah, but still, it wasn't that you had money. It wasn't no, that you yeah. had this, all <laughs> these things that most people can consider privilege. You had friends, you had people, you had a whole community, which yes. creates a value because I think that's going to be really yes. important in the next couple of years as yep. we def- redefine how we do things in the community. I think the last two years of COVID crisis really put a lot of pressure on a lot of people and it's flushed a lot of information and problems into the open that we're now having to look at. So when you talk about privilege, you're not talking about external privileges. You had the privilege of having people who loved you, who were willing to support you through a lot of trauma recovery work. Yeah. And um, people who don't go through that maybe don't realize how much energy, time, effort, and all that, that takes for people to take care of somebody when they're not kind of sick and recovering from those kinds of things. Um, so it is, it is a very real kind of lift that it takes to, to support somebody through something as awful as, as those kinds of traumas that we went through. And so that's, it's not an, uh, it's not an easy feat, but because I had enough people and that's the, that's where the community comes in mm-hmm. is there when one person can't take it anymore, the next person can step up and, and hold you for a while. And that's because it's, it takes time. People expect a lot of times for us to just, I don't know, like you can't. people think a year or two and, and a year or two is just when you finally get to like re- come out of it and realize what happened and see the forest for the trees and start collecting yourself from the damage. That's one or two years after your trauma is when you finally get to start really finding yourself and working on yours, you know, I mean, it's taken me 
this long to get here where I can actually advocate properly. I can speak my needs in a way that's mature and understandable to people. You know, I mean, this just to get to this, you know, and so people don't people underestimate the effort and time it takes. uh, But also they don't. If you do it with enough people, it's not as overwhelming. Yeah, I know that I met you quite a few years ago. And then, you know, I hadn't done my own research into the trauma that comes from the jail and arrest problem. I hadn't done the research that comes from the battering that happens when the the systems that you believed were supposed to protect you actually Mm -hmm. were incarcerating you, were punishing you, were hurting you. Very different from just interpersonal trauma. There's a civic level of trauma that happens that creates, in my opinion, and from the research I did when I did the jail trauma research and I published the document, the research papers on um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms that showed up, I Mm -hmm. had a whole different awakening to the mental illness symptoms that show up and people love to label. But the fact of the matter is when you go through some of the shock things and this trauma and the after effects of dealing with the police, with dealing with the jail system, with dealing with the court systems, people who have never been there don't know that we just, we don't know. I didn't know. I was stunned. Yeah. You can't, so you you can't fully, it's, it takes a lot of, a lot of delving to fully understand the full layers of trauma that it gives you. And then, you know, if you add something into the mix, like, uh, you know, being an actual victim who's being punished for, you know, um, yeah, for, for, for defending, you know, defending their children. And, you know, and then you add that, you know, they should have, they should have put me in the hospital. I was having a mental breakdown when they arrested me, you know, and yeah. instead they locked me in a small room with no windows and no clock. That's psychological torture. If you actually oh look up in psychology today, mm-hmm. you know, and then the guys sit there and they click their, their, their keys 24 hours as they walk the hallways, which is again, another form of psychological torture torture and you know and and the bullying that goes on and like I tried to ask politely what time it was and I realized why they all yelled disrespectfully at the at the jailers because they just ignore you and tell you to f off and you know I mean it's there's a lot of trauma inside yeah there's a lot of weekends you know (laughs) that was three days (laughs) wow and I will never I will never you know I have permanent physical and mental damage I actually um kicked my psoriatic arthritis that was laying semi-dormant in my system into full gear. And I'm actually now permanently disabled from that. Wow. So people don't truly don't understand the, the, the neurological, the emotional, the, the split brain type of conditions. A lot of people will actually laugh. They don't say, ah, there's no split brain, but that is my research of 79 people actually gave me an awareness of what in fact happened because when I started doing the study that I did, I didn't know. I'd never heard of it. Complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I recommend people look it up. I have it. It's a condition that comes when people who are supposed to be protecting you actually harm you. And it's very different from Stockholm syndrome. It's very different from, from normal anxiety and breakdown, but the systems and we're going to change the subject here now, because I know that these, you know, just even talking about this can be anxiety producing 
And Very I much. just want to acknowledge that when I saw you then during the Whatcom, what I call Whatcom County 98225 during the Camp 210 episode, mm-hmm. and I saw you in the streets and I, and I watched what your body was going through and what you were going through emotionally. And I was watching all the different people in the community. And then I was listening to people on social media. And I realized that our entire county was going through a, tra- a civic traumatic event that was like a civic collision between forces. So thank you for having the fortitude, the emotional fortitude to, to work through it, to continue to go get treatments of various kinds and to be able today to sit here and talk to me without yeah, anger, just awareness. Yep. A lot, a lot of work went into that and I'm very proud of it. And I, yeah. I really hope that people can learn from it. Uh-huh. I do. I hope that people that have not experienced, uh, uh, people who have lived a trauma can um, learn from it. And I, I really hope that, you know, of course, people who have trauma can see it and maybe see a glimmer of hope at some point at the end of their time too. Well, and one of the things that we've been working on at the Restorative Community Coalition is helping to identify the different layers of of assistance that people need. Because when the county is looking at, like right now, they're looking at passing another tax because they want to build another jail. And you and I both know, and so in fact do most people in Whatcom County, which is why we have voted down the jail tax two times in a row, 2015 and 2017, the public, the people, the human beings who live in the streets and have families, we know that the system of punishment for profit, the system of jailing and traumatizing people, the system of courts and, you know, you know, hurting people thinking that that's going to help us. We all know it doesn't work. The evidence is here. Economically, it doesn't work. It creates a demand, a ferocious demand for more taxes, more authorities, more rules, more intelligence, more supervision, more, you know, just more, more, more. It's a voracious appetite that the government keeps getting sunk into. And so transforming that means we have to stop thinking of, of punishment as a solution. And in fact, doing prevention work. Exactly. So the front end of prevention, what are the things that you've learned the last couple of years? What are the biggest prevention things as a general construct? What are the biggest prevention things that we need to be doing? Cycle breaking, cycle breaking, cycle breaking. (laughs) (laughs) Break the cycle of what? Breaking cycles. Um, Breaking generational trauma cycles, poverty cycles, abuse cycles. Those are the big three. Those are the big three. Generational cycles. Yes. Okay. Say that again, because I had a little sound thing there. Generational trauma, generational poverty, and generational abuse. Those are the three leaders to drugs, hopelessness, crime, abuse, abusers. That's what creates abusers, the whole nine. That's where we have to start. Um, So you're saying that if the, the root place to start is generational, understand generational trauma, understand generational poverty, understand generational abuse. And then in front of that, so, so if you look at it as generational, there's actually a prevention before and there's a prevention after or an intervention. Mm -hmm. So the intervention is addiction, 
crime and abuse or domestic violence of any kind, violence of any kind. Yep. So, so we can work at the reentry side of people who have already been incarcerated to help them recover so they can come back. Exactly. But we also have to go into the emotional or generational abuse. And then mm-hmm. before that, we actually have to work with people who are dealing with a crisis and help them pull out of the the addiction or the trauma or the poverty or the abuse. So we actually have to get them help during a crisis place. So they're safe to start with. Yep. Safety and stability also are the two biggest things, you know, Um, when you go in and, and try to, to get services when you've lost everything and they go, what do you need? Well, you need everything you need. You need everything. Your life just fell apart, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and if you, and if you're not used to your life regularly falling apart, that's one rodeo, you have no idea, you know? And so there's a lot of, you know, places I feel like at least from what I saw in my experience and what I continue to see in, in my clients experiences and things is that you, these people that are in the system and gatekeep all of these access to services and things they keep asking us like the onus is on the victim to to yell out what their needs are and to ensure that they're being properly met when when we're just trying to survive and recover and we don't a lot of us don't know you know and then if you add any sort of say yeah so you've got an addiction and so then you're not mentally clear or you have a mental illness that makes it hard for you to think like a a societal way that they expect you to think and be able to go through all that, you know, and then they start piling paperwork on you, you know? So, (laughs) so the interesting part of that is that it's very similar, whether you're homeless or you're in poverty or you've been criminalized and assaulted by a civic system that is that you didn't expect. Okay. You've gone through a civic trauma and you're having to deal with, with paper, (laughs) And I guess that's a really good way of talking about civic trauma. And I think mm-hmm. it's a new conversation that we, in fact, need to have because I, when you're in emotional distress, you're not reading papers properly. You don't know the sequence. If you've never been there, done that, you don't even know the language. You don't know how to fill out papers. You don't know what you need exactly. to do first. You don't even know the terms you know, to ask people to get the right papers to fill out and nobody's telling you yeah, you're walking into these places where they're supposed to be the professional. And if you don't know exactly the right codes and words, you don't get the right paperwork. I have tried to get the proper divorce paperwork for three years without a lawyer. And I, they keep handing me different paperwork every time I go into the courthouse and ask for it. Yeah, And I'm and asking the same question and they're handing and me different paperwork every time, you know, I mean, paperwork. The, and that's, <laughs> The paperwork, the list, the expectation that you're supposed to know when they're the ones getting paid to provide the services, which is which exactly. is another version of trauma. Because mm-hmm. what happens is that then when you're already feeling distressed, you're already feeling hopeless, you're already feeling lost. Yep. Then you go to the people who are supposed to be helping you, who should know the sequence. They should know where to go from here to here to here to here. They should have, in fact, I mean, we pay the money. What this yeah. is the hard part for me to figure out. It took a few years working as the as the uh, president of the Restorative Community Coalition to understand Irene when she would say, "Yes, they have token programs. Yes, they have that, but it's like little tiny." 
But if you go in there and ask them what should go first or what should go after, or where do you have to go get the answers? The people often working at the front desk don't know the answers and they expect you to have them, but you don't Mm -hmm. have them. And so everybody's siloed and everybody's trying to do the best they can, but nobody knows what the sequence is. They don't have checklists. They don't have a way to help you. And they expect you to tell them, but you're the one that doesn't know even how to think straight right now because you're in trauma. You're literally the one that needs help. And they're asking you, (laughs) you know, yeah, thank you. Exactly. So it's really, it's really sort of, um, um, it's a catch 22, if you will. And then what happens is that people who are paying the taxes or the people who don't have any money and are, are, we've got a perpetrator victim problem here that is neither one of our human problems. It's a systems problem. Exactly. And, and yet we emotionally, we start to either defend ourselves, protect ourselves, attack somebody else. And so the human emotions kick into gear and we start triangulating. Then people get mad at each other and then you have hurt feelings and then that escalates. When in fact, we have a systems problem that needs to be corrected. Would you agree with exactly. that? Oh, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and, and, and part of the problem is getting the people who are operating the system to understand that it's not personal. Um, that's right. Especially that's because, yeah, they're having to protect themselves because when, when it was interesting, when I first started working with the criminal justice issue, we've now mm-hmm. learned, even statewide, they've learned not to, they call it the criminal legal system, not criminal justice anymore. They're called oh. criminal <laughs> legal system. So they acknowledge that there's no justice. That's at least something. (laughs) It is something specifically, though, only in the justice system itself at the highest level of reentry. I mean, when Irene first started the Restorative Community Coalition, this was the first reentry coalition in the state of Washington. Yep. And people didn't know reentry and reentry has sort of been co-opted by the people who run the prison industrial complex or the Washington state prison in, prison industry, the actual group that runs the, the uh, reentry oh. programs. So we had to learn that prison reentry is a specific class of reentry and that jail reentry is completely different. Mental health reentry is completely different and people don't even know that these words are different. So just oh. for fun, it's going to help you to know that on our new website, the restorativecommunity.org, we're going to develop a glossary of terms. Oh, and the good. glossary isn't going to be about the legal words. It's actually going to be the context within which you use these words, because otherwise, the colliding forces, the people who are the pros and cons in politics will use these as polarizing words because, and then it looks like double speak, and then people don't understand. I mean, we're not even talking apples and oranges when we go in front of the county council or the city council. Yeah. So learning to define words is going to be important, just like I talked about privilege. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So that people can understand the different, you know, different um, meanings, aspects, and definitions of these, you know, depending on where you're standing. In, in society is where you see your see privilege. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and post-conviction or post-arrest is a very different conversation than prevention and pre-conviction or pre-arrest. Yeah. And it's also very different than prevention. 
So prevention, which is helping people deal with their Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, a safe place to sleep, water, a place to go to the bathroom. I mean, these are all issues that showed up at Camp 210. And it was interesting to me when I saw you there and I realized what was actually going on in the camp is that without toilets that are handy, I mean, how many people can actually, if you don't have a toilet in your home and you don't have access to cafes and you're not being allowed to go into government buildings and you're not being able to do things, how are you going to control your bodily functions? Exactly. Bodily functions are a really important thing, not and, and so Missy, after we talked about the generational trauma, the generational poverty, the generational abuse, we also have an economic problem. And I, I didn't forewarn you to have this conversation, but we've actually had the COVID crisis showed up and that threw us all into an emergent, a state of emergency where technically the sheriff's department and the emergency disaster people went into command and control over everybody else. And there were a lot of um, situations where those of us in the civic realm, the citizen watchdogs and the citizens that were able to give input back into the system, it all got shut down there for the last two years. There really has been in a way a kind of shutout where us citizens were not being heard. It happened with the, with the restorative community coalition the Stakeholders Advisory Committee was convened, and then it was shut down. The people were not able to go into the courthouse or into the city hall to give public testimony. And so we ended up with this technical Zoom situation. And even before that, nobody was talking and people, so the whole community sort of went into a toxic shock situation. Yep. Where we were traumatized, we, we were isolated, people were afraid. You know, so we were actually in a health emergency situation crisis before the winter of 2021 made it extremely agitated and difficult. So the CPTSD, if you will, actually (laughs) wasn't about the homeless and it wasn't about the criminals. It was about all the people in the community that were dealing with different versions of shock. Do you understand what I'm talking about there? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the collective trauma from the COVID emergency and the the sudden shift shut down isolation, like you said, isolation and fear, isolation and fear. Those that's, you know, and, and, and those are just crippling to people and a community, you know, And, and the County council was in fear, the County, you know, the police officers are in fear. The entire government and all the of the systems are in fear. Everybody. And the, mm-hmm. e- the economic fear, the stress of being isolated, not being able, the grief yeah. of losing everything mm-hmm. we thought was safe and true. The whole community was dealing with fear, was dealing with isolation. We went into lockdown. You know, yeah. all this was happening on every single front and no one knew how to navigate. And then in the middle of it, we ended up with Camp 210 and you guys asking that the homeless people were asking for survival needs. I mean, they were asking for emergency disaster support like that you would prevent, you would present and that we would expect our emergency services and emergency disaster preparedness people to have provided like a tent, basic water, basic toilets, you know, basic services. And none of that was forthcoming from the county 
and the city couldn't deliver all that. Basically, we had a jurisdictional war between different departments and different jurisdictions. We had state, local, and federal issues that was all related to even after the presidential, you know, the insurrection at, in, yep. in Washington, D.C. I mean, we had civic and civil and we had complex issues. Oh, and absolutely. So, so in the middle of that, everybody's dealing with a form of CPTSD. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, at least PTSD and anxiety and stress and fear. And then along came the, the, the deep weather and the freezing weather cycles that showed up. And then you guys are in the streets and you're having to help people under deep, deep COVID crisis. You're supposed to be covered up. People are afraid of assisting. And yet you had, you know, to my estimation, I'm guessing a thousand people that were out there in the middle of the COVID crisis during the disaster, helping, trying to help other people who were living homeless on the streets. So the thing that I want to note about that, and I haven't talked about this before, but the thing I want to note is that people helping people is what got many, many, many hundreds of people through that winter season. There were a few people that did die invariably but we're really not talking about that. But the fact of the matter is people wanted to help. People wanted to help each other. People did. There were thousands of dollars in donations and volunteer hours that were given, but we couldn't even talk about that because we're in a Zoom shutdown and people didn't know how to use Zoom. Yep. So talk yep. to me about your experience of living through that without going into without yeah. making you melt down. I mean, just talk about what some of those things were. It was hard because the, the way that things were shut down, in my opinion, were done terribly. And I'm not, I know I'm far from the only one who, who agrees with sure. that. Or, sure. We were in a mess. And, 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 and so they, you know, while they were sitting there saying that the Dairy Queen is an essential service and putting our children and uh, minimum wage workers at, at the most high risk so that we can still have a cheeseburger, our, you know, all of our outreach and all of our emergency, they all shut down. All the extra services that, that, that people were getting, the, the clients thing, you know, any sort of housing services, all that, all those services weren't considered essential. And so, almost all the nonprofits in town basically completely shut their doors. You oh know, my God. So yeah. hold on. You just pointed something out that nobody else talked about. Most people I don't think even thought about for the homeless, the homeless don't have phones. A lot of them don't. So yep. when the offices of the nonprofits closed down that were providing services before, when the government departments shut down that were providing services before, when the police closed their doors and weren't providing citizen support, when first aid and all of our emergency services, all of they, all of those people were also dealing with COVID crisis restrictions. Overwhelming could not handle, you know, I mean, they, you know, they're already buried in calls and, and then you and also then. add the fact that all Bellingham has relied for a very long time on the minimum wage downtown workers to care for your homeless. And I have a serious issue with that as somebody who's worked downtown for 20 years. We're not we're not qualified and we shouldn't be that shouldn't be something that the that the government has put upon us, but they have. And what happened was is 
they relied greatly on our bathrooms and our compassion for giving them water and our compassion for handing out free coffees and meals and letting them have day olds. And so when all of our restaurants and all of our shops downtown shut down, they had nowhere to charge their phones. They had nowhere to go to the bathroom. They had nowhere to eat. They had nowhere to, I mean, so many avenues were cut off Then all the churches shut down and they weren't giving out food. I mean, Everybody threw the homeless in the garbage when to, when when COVID hit. Nobody was helping no. them at all. And there was food, no they one. weren't getting medical. They weren't getting the, all their housing lists were on stop. If you had court, you were still on the hook for years and years and years for a court case because you couldn't get into court. You can't get a job. You still got char- charges hanging over your head. Nobody's going to hire you. <laughs> I mean, the wow. ramifications of what they did to our homeless will ripple for eternity and nobody is addressing that at all. So the multiplier effect, the compound violence, the compound shutdown that, I mean, I realized that the County council was under stress when the, the city decided when the mayor decided to go ahead and do that camp 210 quote unquote sweep, it created conflict and trauma between the councils and the people who were writing laws and doing these things and the executive branches. It created trauma between the police and the sheriffs. It created trauma between the public workers and everybody. But way beyond that, the actual trauma of COVID created a whole other multiplier effect of no services. So so when we talk about the fact that that base camp couldn't provide certain things or wouldn't provide. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg that had nothing to do with all the other traumas that the homeless were dealing with. There was nothing there at all. Everything got shut down, taken away from them and no one provided any other services, alternative services for them. They were just out there done, dying, dead, no food, no medical, no nothing. They crammed 200 of them into the high school while they made base camp, which is still a congregate shelter against all of the regulations that they were asked of by uh, the CDC and the government. Even before they started building that, it was known that a congregate shelter was dangerous and not the safe way to go. And they still have yet to give us um, anything that's even remotely CDC regulated. And, And when did they do that? They did that in 2020. That they did that right. at the, uh, yeah at the very beginning of the pandemic when they were all, when every other city and county and state in in was getting all the first run of CARES dollars and they were all putting people in hotels and some tiny homes and things that were were non congregate because that was so important to to stopping and stemming the spread not only in the homeless community and in a bunch of people that are already commute compromised, but also in our community at large, because of course, homeless people roam and don't have a place to be quarantined. So they go out into the community and mix it up with us and give us it too when they wind up with an outbreak. So as every other city and county is taking the CDC recommendations and uh, providing non-congregate shelter, they were handing money and property to the mission to do a deal with the high school so that the high school could get a new, you like their, you like their new uh, football field? That's what your CARES dollars pay for. Wow. So that's a complication yep. that happened in 2020, even before all this other, all the complaining about bullying and all the upheaval and all the things yeah. that ended up yeah. with- 
the homeless hazing and the and the battering and all the stuff that happened in 2021, mm-hmm. there was a precursor problem. Yeah, we'd already asked them. Mm-hmm. We'd already asked them for non-congregate sheltering. They'd already shut down the mission because it was unsafe. But then they opened up base camp, which is just the same open air, no facility. You know, there was it, it. They didn't do anything to make it COVID safe. So they just threw millions away to put them downtown. So the whole story that I've listened to multiple times is actually almost all of this conversation that happened in politics missed the point. Yep. It missed the point at the beginning. Yes. It missed the point that when COVID and emergency services shut down, when the emergency disaster condition was set down from the state level and emergency disaster people took over, it shut down everything, which then created a base foundation that people didn't even understand because everybody was in shock. Yep. So it's not necessarily, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this because I don't know how else to say it. It's really not one person's fault that this whole mess is such a massive mess. It's a combination oh. of hundreds of people thousands actually inside the city, inside the county, inside of our state, inside of our government services, inside the nonprofits who missed the point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what it's afforded them is the ability to go, well, yeah, but they did this. And so now they're just sitting around finger pointing at each other and blaming each other for the mess up when they're all implicit. You know, they all had a, they're all cog in that breakdown machine. So and we're all Im- complicit in that we were all dealing with comp- co- different forms of complex post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, right. different forms of civic shock, different forms of civic trauma, different forms. I mean, I actually came up when I did the report in February of 2021, I did that. I called it um, a civic collision. I didn't even understand what I said or what I meant when I said that, because it was a civic collision. Yeah, absolutely. All the forces coming together and the people who really didn't and and the shame blame game really did start. It did. Because everybody was trying to other other people. Nobody wanted the lawsuits. Nobody wanted to screw it up. Nobody wanted to get covid we, you know, it was like a nobody, nobody and everybody, everybody. And let's just point that, you know, it's over there. Hot potato. Anywhere. <laughs> Anywhere but in my hands. Hot potato. Pass it. Yep. <laughs> and the people who actually had no resources at all, as we talked about earlier, we have no privilege. And yep. the only thing that you guys could work with at that point was each other and trying to, to team together in tents and in encampments anywhere you could go because every place else was dangerous because of COVID. And if you didn't have water and you didn't have sewer and you didn't have food and you didn't have heat, it created a nightmare that we still, no one that I know of in this County has actually had that conversation yet. Yeah. Well, and anybody had it. We, we had been, we had been asking for them to give these people shelter for that very reason for that entire summer. We've right, gone the, into meetings and, and yes, said, you know, but let's, let's be clear what they heard when you're saying, give them shelter, what they hear from the preconditioned mindset 
mm-hmm. housing first had been yelled for for a long time. So housing first was a construct that was a psychological construct of people in the nonprofit sector who had been fighting for housing first. They were fighting for low income housing. What right. you were asking for was shelter. You, yeah. you were asking for any kind of shelter to get people out of the freezing cold. Stability of so, any kind, four walls, a roof and a door. <laughs> not even four walls, just a damn tent. Yeah. You were well, asking yeah. for a tent. You were asking people to be able to live in their house, in their, in their motorhomes. You were asking for mm-hmm. shelter. You were asking for a safe place to sleep that was so, out of freezing cold that actually allowed people a place to go to the bathroom safely to drink exactly. safe water, to get wash COVID services, hands. to wash yeah, their hands and be sanitary. Yeah. So what you were asking for was disaster and emergency services. And what, they, what many of the people, they, in the bureaucracy and in the conditioned response, the privileged who's working with money and insurance and resources and stuff, they have responsibility to provide stuff, but they're controlled by laws and rules. But the only perception, the only hearing they could hear is you need housing first, which means apartments you need maybe. I mean, fortunately, the, the tiny home homes now was able to finally negotiate space down there. But the real, the homeless, that are, the hundreds, I don't know how many thousands of homeless we actually have. They say hundreds. I think it's up in the thousands, if I'm not mistaken. We are estimating about 12 to 15, which is far closer to the real reality than their 700. Yes. Yeah, that's the di- diversity and understanding. Because I know that if you have a car, you're not considered homeless because you could sleep in it. And Crashing yet, on so- a friend's sofa makes you not homeless. Right. So they change yeah. the definitions. So Thank people you. aren't even using the same definitions. Exactly. Exactly. And it's all used to, that's why it's, that's why, <laughs> so that they can budge numbers, you know. Well, yeah, and to fit the paradigm that they're living in. So it's exactly. not that they're intentionally running around creating this big conspiracy. It's that they genuinely don't see it or hear it through the same viewfinders that you're speaking it from. I mean, that's a possibility. They've asked me for that data about four times, and I've given it to them, and they've they've they refused still don't it. Use it. So. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the information was going in, but it wasn't yep. being active, acted upon because it's not something they know how to deal with. Because it's not the answer they want. Wow. So we've got complex. God, the other thing I wrote when I did that report on, com- on um, Whatcom County 98225 after I watched what happened after the Camp 210 debacle. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that was like a police raid on the community. It wasn't what it was was. called. You know, it wasn't half of what they were calling it. And I talked about it in my report and I came up with recommendations for the city and for the county and for people and said, this is what we need to do. But I even missed the the point. I missed the point when I called, we had compound civic domestic violence I was still thinking that the bureau, that the police and the sheriff and the lack of emergency support was still in their camp. And that's partly true. But I miss the fact that the whole civic collision from all these different forces actually did create 
this unified compound civic domestic violence situation where the battered people were the people at the lowest of the economic rung who had no resources to help themselves. Yes, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, this is a, this is something that we need to talk about. And what's, what's fun is is we're going to have a chance to start working on solving the problem because I'm actually, God, I'm really pleased to hear this. I'm not pleased that it happened. No, but okay. it's good to get it out there in a clear and concise manner so that people the can fact, get and understand, start to understand it, I guess. It takes a while. <laughs> the fact that we could, now that I understand whole other dimensions of the problem, we can diagram these problems. We can do yes. a timeline. We can do a trauma timeline. We can mm-hmm. do a episode, you know, the, the timeline, we can put a timeline of weather patterns. We can put a timeline of what organization said what at which time, not because we want to sue anybody, but we just want to understand what yeah. happened emotionally to the community as we went through two years of COVID trauma. Exactly. That exactly. will help all of us get a better understanding of what the problems are. But most importantly, we can then look at what the solutions are. Yep. And that's the important part at this point is just we need the solutions and we need to start implementing them yesterday. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so what's going to be fun. I mean, God, when I use this term fun, I don't mean <laughs> happiness inducing. I With mean, all incredibly. yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch how fast when the community is able to, you know, it's just like when you've gone through a trauma situation, you have to stand down from the emotions and then eventually you start to collect your wits and yep. then you start to put pieces together and then you start to understand the mess you're in and how to get out of it. And then it gets fun to climb out of it. <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like it's and we are fun. at the crawl out of it phase if we, if we choose to as a community. <laughs> Yeah. So, so the, the fun part is that you've been out there in the middle of the water floating around and the tugboats never showed up and you never got a life ring or you never got a rope ladder. And suddenly they showed up and there's a life ring and a rope ladder and you can still grasp it and get out. That's fun because, oh my God, it's possible we can get out of this mess. So that's the way that I'm going to define the word fun right now. Okay. Yep. Because (laughs) (laughs) so over the next three to six months, what the Restorative Community Coalition is proposing is that all of these different nonprofits who never got funded during from the CARES dollars before after all the people who are sort of like niche groups who who dealt with serious civic trauma, that we sort of come together and as humans not as departments, not as the justice system, not as the stakeholders advice, all these people who have what I call truly privileged and entitlement because they have authority, they have responsibility, but they have authority and they have resources they can allocate. So let's Mm -hmm. set those dudes over here for a minute and let's go back to the community, the human beings who are really traumatized during this whole situation without resources, without backup, without water, without, you know, safe, safe stuff. Let's bring those people together and say, okay, what did you learn from this? What were the miseries? Put them in a column. 
what were the, the things that you really needed, put that in another column, and then say, what would have really truly made a difference in this compound complex traumatic situation, civic trauma situation? And from that, let's learn what we need to do minimally to survive next year, right? Yep, exactly. And how can we fix it? And let's publish a report that is just about the human beings solving the problem themselves, because there's a lot of things you did learn. I mean, thousands of people showed up with thousands of dollars over an extended period of time to help each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I did it again during the floods, you know, different, uh, not yeah. exactly the same group, some overlap, but I mean, you see it happen and there is a difference, you know, there, there's a big difference between, I, you, you kind of brought it up before, uh, but um, it, it's, it's, it's trauma disaster or, you know, and, and so disaster is easier for people because there's a, a start and an end date kind of in their brains you know it's like for a couple of weeks here and then you get back on your feet because you're okay and then you know the more as they put it chronic you know people that have more issues because you know they you know so then that that takes a, a different kind of people uh different kind of donation heart um, yeah and then we had another complication that also showed up and we don't have enough time to go into this whole conversation but i know that i want to bring this group of people to the conversation as well is the people who are illegal immigrants or are immigrants or are dealing with, you know, farm worker issues out in the county. Because I did have a conversation with some of them Mm -hmm. and the issues they dealt with as a follow through from the floods and supposedly the money that was coming in to help them. It didn't go where it was supposed to go either. It actually didn't go to the people. It went to organizations or it went to companies or it went over here or there. Because corporations work with corporations. They don't necessarily work directly with people because they have certain rules and laws and things that we put in it. Mm -hmm. So we got some work to do in this community to unravel the problems. And it's not going to come, in in my experience, having been trying to get help for the criminal justice system and to really work at how do we prevent the harming of more and more people. We actually need to back up as a community and relook at how does the community work. And we have a lot we can learn from you guys because you had to survive it. And the people you helped all winter, you guys had to learn how to get organized and you guys had to learn. Give me a couple examples of heroism or some of the things that you learned about your fellow colleagues who were fighting with this, the, the good things that came out of that experience. Oh, let's see the good things that came out of that experience. That one's that one's hard. You know, it's that one's complicated because there was a lot of there. There was a lot of good. There was a lot of awareness brought to a lot of people that didn't otherwise have it. It definitely shown a big, big wounded spotlight. For yeah, it was messy, but you know, really people messy. didn't see it. It was messy. That was the point. You know, nobody was looking at the mess. They were, you know, they were not looking and we had to just kind of like bleed in front of them for them to see like, this is real suffering. This is real trauma. And they're really not getting the help that, that we need. And so I saw, you know, I saw a lot of the human connections and I, I don't think any of us saw ourselves as heroes. I hope not. Um, no, no, I don't, I don't No, I don't think so. I, I think that, what mattered to us was that that people felt 
supported, seen, heard. So many of these people have, you know, have just been ignored, stepped over, literally shut down and told to be quiet and stop and stop dying loudly, you know, and then go, go, don't die on my doorstep, go die in the woods where I can't see you. And so just all of us being there together and being able to support each other in that trauma for a change um, made a huge difference to a lot of people. And I still have people that are still, I'm still trying to get help for because they touched me so deeply personally, you know, and each one of my board members has, you know, what we call a pet project, somebody that just has touched our hearts so much that we continue to work with them in a very high touch or, you know, that's, that's, you know, and so there was, there's just, there's been a lot of that. Um, and that's not just us. That was other, other people, you know, at 210 have, you know, did form their own connections with other people and, you know, some volunteers coming in and. I was touched. What I can say is I was touched to find out how many elder seniors and elder people in our community stepped up to the plate to cook to deliver food, to walk around the streets at midnight when it's freezing outside, to get people food and transport people from place to place in the middle of a COVID crisis where they were putting their own lives at risk. Yeah. And they helped. And they they were braver than any any of our government officials have ever been, um, hands down. There's so many, there's so many people, retirees, especially older women that put themselves out there and do so much of this work and our city and county expects it from them. And, and it's it's kind of, it's not right. No, because they, they do it out of the goodness of their own hearts and they're beautiful, wonderful people, but they should never be relied upon to provide that level of service to these people. That should be something a professional deals with, and they should be able to go into a place that's regulated and has safety measures in place and provide volunteer service. They shouldn't be out there having to give, you know, clean needles to people for harm reduction and, you know, help somebody change out of their pee pants because they can't regulate their own bladders and their tents. And, you know, all the things that I've watched these, you know, like you said, older people that are at a higher risk that, you know, are putting them, you know, these are all things I watched them do de-escalation. Mm-hmm. Yeah safety patrols in the evenings, you know, I would go out um, before um, at, at dark to make the, the w- women in the camp feel safer and make sure and, you know, and, and go around and do the patrols and stuff. But yeah, there was so many, so many people that, you know, stayed up all night to, you know, pulled night shifts to, to make sure people were safe or had, you know, food or, you know, just to keep the, keep everything, you know, going. It the took, Good Samaritan truth is is really it was really an evidence in Watkins. Beautiful for the first several you know weeks. It was I mean as heartbreaking as it was and as soul crushing as it was to have to be there and to watch the that human suffering right on City Hall lawn, watching the humanitarian response and all of the the people come together to try to keep that going safe and keep people, you know, intense and warm and fed. And all of that was just, that's what I want. That's what we want more of. That's, you know, that's what we want to see. You know, we want that just, you know, but we want it in a building where it's safer, you know, we want it in a sheltering system and then we want to be able to integrate them into, like you said, and, you know, we need, you know, they're going to build this big jail and then what happens when they get out, there's, there's no services. You can't get, you can't get retrained. You can't get hired anywhere. You go right back to jail. Cool. 
Well, yeah, that's, a, that's not going to work. Profit system that just chews my people up, spits them out, and when they're dead, you know. And and what so we really need, prisons, you know. Yeah, but what we really need is prevention. We need early and that's yes. Exactly. We need job retraining. It has to be prevention. Yeah, and that prevention can be done in ways that do not require high high government interference. There's there's a lot of things that we can do. So let's let's postpone the rest of this conversation because we're getting towards the end of the night, end of the time, and we'll come back to this. But I really want to thank you, Missy, for having the courage to step out for having the courage to continue to go, for having the courage to go get healing work done in extreme trauma situations. And mostly right now for helping me to understand that I didn't see the depth of the trauma either. I thought I did. And I thought that I understood because I've worked with people who've gone through the prison system and come out, but I did not truly comprehend the level of COVID trauma, civic trauma, all of these things, I had glimmers of it, but I didn't get it. And it's time for us as an entire community of human beings to start working together to get a report done that we can show to those people who have no clue at all. Absolutely. They don't have a clue and, and they may not be able to solve the problems, but we can solve the problems because through the community, we can find ways to solve this problem and we, we must do it because they can. Yeah. And, 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 and a lot of us that you're talking about these nonprofits that weren't, you know, that are, that were coming up, that were, that are providing the on the ground and, and, you know, yeah. and getting by, um, we have a lot of solutions that we could be implementing immediately if we had, you know, that support and education on that level. So it's definitely. Let's needed. do it. Yeah, exactly. I agree. It. So tell us your your uh, website and how people can connect with SOS and yeah. we'll so it's another appointment. Yeah. So it's serenityoutreachservices.org and we're SOS Bellingham as well. And so, and then we're on Facebook you can type us in there and let's see. And then on a, when you go to our website, there's a place where you can donate. There's a place where you can volunteer, sign up to volunteer. There's info about all of us on the board and what we do in the direct outreach. And we're still, you know, we're still building up our media because we spend so much time doing outreach that a lot of times that goes to the wayside, but, but there is info there and you can always ask us questions on Facebook or through the Serenity Outreach Services dot org website and then website and serenity outreach services at gmail.org for email excellent thank you so much missy we will be doing some more and i'd love to do some more disclosure work because i think it's important and and for us to be able to learn to talk to each other and here behind beyond the public relations and beyond the rhetoric and beyond the rules Let's just be humans and let's talk about it because we have to do this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's work that's got to be done. So might as well talk it, talk about it, plan accordingly and move forward always. Thank you so much. Have a great night, Missy, Thank and you. we'll talk yeah. to you another day. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter 
connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.